Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back together in the multiple ways that we are gathering. Uh, some here in person, others uh, through streaming and other options. We're glad to be together this morning, but as the people of God, we love the Word of God. So let's be called together uh, by worship, uh, called together to worship with Psalm 110. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament psalm in the New Testament, and for good reason, because the Lord is seated our Lord Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. So if you want to stand, stand if you want to remain seated, remain seated, but we're going to sing together. shall reign. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall his name and praise our sovereign King. He shall reign forever with his chosen bride, and all the earth shall sing that Jesus is the King. People in round. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their earthly blessings on. 
shall sing that Jesus is the King. Let every creature Jesus is the King. He shall reign. He shall reign in glory crowned with grace and might. Bless His name and praise the Sovereign King. He shall reign forever with His chosen bride. And all the earth shall sing that Jesus is the King. Father, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Davidic King, in fulfillment of your promise to Adam, to Abraham, to David, is exalted as King at your right hand, raised from the grave, having undergone the miseries of this life your wrath, death itself the cursed cross satisfying your divine justice on sinners like us but now in his resurrection his ascension to your right hand he is exalted the king is exalted on high hallelujah and he reigns And we have been raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. That is our position. That is our identity. And that's why the people of God are marked not by despair and anger in a broken world, but by joy and hope. We thank you for that gift. The gift of a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We pray today, Lord, as we gather and worship the living God, that we could reorient our affections 
our minds, our wills back to that reality. His victory is our victory. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. May we reflect that in our words, in how we correspond to one another, how we bear witness to our neighbor, and how we worship this morning. And Lord, on this Memorial Day weekend, we are grateful, so, so grateful for the men and women who, who gave up their very lives in military service to secure freedoms like religious liberty, the freedom of worship. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifices that have been made, common grace sacrifices that we might gather today without fear of retribution, without fear of persecution at this moment. But we are reminded today as we gather that their sacrifices, though so beautiful and important to us, are a mere reflection, a mere shadow of the once-for-all sacrifice that is the ground of our worship this morning, that is found in Jesus Christ our King. May he be exalted today. May we have eyes to see and behold him by your Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The writer of Hebrews, uh, we quoted from Psalm 110 a moment ago at the beginning of the service, and the writer of Hebrews draws heavily from Psalm 110. And then chapter 7, he's really focused on the, the intercessory role and the accomplished work of the priesthood of Christ. David, when he wrote Psalm 110, said in verse 4, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is that new priestly order, not from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, about which nothing is said concerning priests. And yet he is that new, eternal, Melchizedekian priest. And the writer of Hebrews writes this in chapter 7, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priest, on the, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing under the old covenant. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This church this morning, Jesus the ascended, ruling, and reigning Messiah at the right hand of God is interceding for us. Specifically, he's interceding for you if you are one of his sons and daughters. If you are in Christ and know God through Christ and are in him, he is interceding for us, for you this morning. He ever lives to make intercession for them. For Verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever.
And church, that is the truth that we want to sing of this morning. So when we sing this next song that before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. This is what the writer of Hebrews was saying in chapter 7. So let's continue to worship and sing together. And you can stand, you can sit, whatever you're most comfortable with this morning, but let's worship.
Your glorious cause, your glorious cause, oh God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard. Father, we come to you this morning because 
of the accomplished work of Christ. We don't come to you because Jesus made salvation possible. We come to you because of what he accomplished once and for all. In our place, condemned he stood, taking on a condemnation that was not his own, but exchanging our sins and the sins of all your people for his righteousness. Oh, what a sweet exchange so that your justice in pardoning sinners like us would not be ignored, but would be glorified. And yet on the third day, raised to life for our justification and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Scripture teaches us, where he awaits that time when all of his enemies are but a footstool under his feet. And yet in the meantime, our King is also our high priest. And he ever lives to intercede for us. So we pray, Lord Jesus, intercede for your people this morning. We are broken. We are needy. We wear physical masks, but often hide behind metaphorical masks. I pray that we would come open and broken before you with hands empty because we have nothing to offer you, and yet we give you all that we have and pray that you would be glorified, you would be honored in in how we listen to the word of God as it's preached, how we go from this place and conduct ourselves until we meet back here again, so that in all things Christ would be magnified and people would see Jesus Christ in us. And so do that which only you, by your spirit and your word, can do right now as it is preached. Open our hearts, fill Brian with your spirit, and may your word go forth with power, because we know it will not return void. So accomplish your work this morning in your people, and we give you the praise and the glory for what you have done and what you are about to do. So let us feast. And we ask it through Christ, by the Spirit, to you, our loving and eternal Father. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you, Barry. Worship team, worship band. Happy Memorial Day weekend. We are always mindful of our military who essentially give their adult lives away, and in many cases, their very lives, to secure our freedoms that we enjoy even this morning. And so this weekend, please be thinking about those realities that we so easily take for granted. We're in Psalm 2 this morning. The plan is to get back to 2 Samuel 12 next week. Not trying to avoid 2 Samuel 12, but felt compelled, believed I needed to give us some hope this morning. Of course, all scripture is hopeful, but there are certain texts that speak to specific issues that the people are specifically dealing with. Let's pray and let's ask our Lord to grant us illumination this morning. You know, when you, you can read the Bible without the Holy Spirit and have a kind of academic understanding, but you need the supernatural ministry, the illuminating ministry of the Spirit to see the significance in the deep-seated implications of a text. 
for your own life. And that's what we need today. So let's, even as I preach, praying dependently on the Spirit, let's hear the word preached, hearing dependently on the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are dependent this morning, but we are not hopeless. We have a living hope in your son, Jesus, and may your spirit today illuminate us even more to the glories of that hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was born in 1968. I don't remember the beginning of the sexual liberation movement, which included increased acceptance of sex outside of traditional monogamous heterosexual marriage, but normalization of porn, pornography, premarital sex, alternative forms of sexuality, and the legalization of abortion all followed the sexual liberation movement. But I do remember in 1992, I was 24 years old, the court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, when the Supreme Court affirmed the ruling of Roe versus Wade from back in 1973 that the state is prohibited from banning most abortions. And then we remember the state-by-state progression of same-sex marriage, which began in Massachusetts in 19, or 2004, rather, culminating in a nationwide decision with Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. And then you add on top of that the battles over religious liberty that spawned such as Corporate America's threatened commerce against Indiana due to, at the time, Governor Mike Pence's proposed Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And then add to that the political controversies that immediately followed in 2016, crazy controversies over transgender bathrooms as well as workplace controversies over gendered pronouns. Religious liberty, which is clearly set forth in the Constitution, appears to be losing in the courts to what is known as erotic liberty, which is not found anywhere in the Constitution. And now there's the pandemic and the government's inconsistent response to the pandemic. And little by little, many Christians are feeling pushed to the periphery of whatever this nation is becoming. There was ever a time to hear from Psalm 2. It's today. Now, Psalm 2 can be read apart from Psalm 1, but you lose some of the depth and transcendence of the text if you do that. Psalm 1 and 2 are considered a pair written by David. And most scholars 
in the area of the Psalms believe, and I believe rightly, Psalm 1 and 2 are the prologue of the entire Psalter. Coming attraction of what is to come. An overture, if you've ever been to a play, and the orchestra kind of whets your appetite for what is to come. And there's so many ways we could defend that. For instance, you see all of the subject matter that you see played out in the Psalms in Psalm 1 and 2. You have the promises of blessing. You have to let God define what that blessing is. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity blessing, but the promise of blessing on the righteous in the midst of a world filled with scoffers and the wicked. And in Psalm 2, you see the nations at war with God, spiritual warfare, and yet in the midst of all of that, the king is exalted. And the people of God find their hope in what appears to be a hopeless world because of the exalted king. You see that played out throughout the Psalms. And then we know that Psalm 1 and 2 are connected because of key repetitions. So for instance, at the very beginning of Psalm 1, notice, blessed is the man. And then notice the last line of Psalm 2, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So you have the promise of blessing at the beginning of Psalm 1, the promise of blessing at the end of Psalm 2. And then there's these similar endings. Notice at the end of chapter 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then at the end of Psalm 2, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. There's other connections as well that we might note through our sermon. But I want you to note this. Psalm 1 describes the righteous man who lives the blessed life in a world of scoffers. Now, I happen to believe that there's one righteous man. That this Psalm, Psalm 1, ultimately describes and is found its, finds its fulfillment in one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are blessed as righteous in him. But here's the question. How can a man live a blessed life in a world filled with scoffers? Psalm 2 answers that question. That's why Psalm 2 is important to us this morning. So right at the very beginning of the Psalter, Our songbook, the inspired songbook of Psalms, we learn that no matter how it may appear in human history, whatever it looks like right now in your life as a believer, you are blessed. And that blessing cannot be taken away because it's secured in one righteous man and one exalted Messiah. And in terms of what's happening right now with the pandemic, God's king is presently exalted. He's no less exalted today than he was three months ago. And God's people are no less blessed today than we were three months ago. Because again, our blessings are not dependent on any government. They are secured in an exalted king. And in time... This king is going to rule over all the nations. 
So when you read the Psalms, you see this movement of lament. I mean, Psalm 3 begins out of the gates with struggle. But you see this movement of lament to worship. In fact, you see that in many individual Psalms until it ends in five chapters of hallelujah. Psalm 146 to 150. Over 40 times in Psalm 146 to 50, we see the word praise the Lord, which is Hebrew, hallelujah. And it's because of the exalted king. And so Psalm 2 kicks off the Psalter. Psalm 1 and 2, for that matter, by establishing who's in charge. And it isn't who our eyes might tell us. In fact, Psalm 2 begins with the critical question. That's really the prologue of the, of the chapter. And here's the critical question. Notice in verse 1. Of course, Acts 4 tells us David writes this. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. So this is not a question where David is seeking an explanation as much as it's an exclamation. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The very nations, the very peoples that owe their life in all of common graces to this God who made them. In Psalm 1, there is the man. I want you to notice this. Look with me in verse 1 because you're going to miss this in English. There's the man who meditates. It's actually verse 2 of chapter 1. Who meditates day and night. On what? The law of God. The righteous man is known by what he meditates upon. He meditates on the law of God. Now in chapter 2, the people's plot in vain. Same Hebrew word. That word plot is the same word for meditate in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the righteous are known by what they meditate upon. The law of God. The word of God. And the unrighteous are known by their plotting. By their anger. By their unrest. Of soul, the people's plot in vain. It's quite telling, isn't it? And what is it they are plotting? What is it they are musing upon and meditating upon? They want to be God. They want to be God. That's the natural bent of every sinner. And even as believers, if we're not filled with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit... That's our natural bent as, a, as well. That's why we hate authority. Nations and individuals of nations are abuzz with vain plotting, vain meditation. And it's true of all the unregenerate at all times. It should never be true of the blessed righteous. If someone were to examine your life and your words, what would they say this person meditates upon? It's a critical question. Now, starting in verse 2, we're going to see four voices. 
seek to really respond to that question. Question is found in verse 1. That's the prologue. And now we're going to see four voices. The first voice is from the wicked nations. The second voice is from Yahweh. The third voice is from his anointed, his king. The fourth voice is from David himself. The first voice we see in verses 2 and 3, the enemies of the Lord speak up as this question has been posed. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Notice in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, the Lord. That's the name. That's the covenantal name. And against his anointed. These are the powers of history. But they're also the collective scoffers of Psalm 1. It's all the scoffers come together. Individually, corporately, and expressed through governments. And who are they scoffing against? It says, Yahweh, the Lord, and against his anointed. We've been in Samuel some time. Who is his anointed? His, that's the Hebrew word Messiah. Who is his Messiah? Well, at this time, David is writing this. It's David. David is the anointed, but we know ultimately there's a greater anointed one who would come. In other words, long before the incarnation, the psalmist was describing circumstances that would run throughout all of human history. That's why we should never be surprised at what we see. We should never be shocked. We should never be thrown off guard. And this rebellion is aimed wittingly in many cases, unwittingly in other cases, at the Lord and His Messiah. Originally, of course, this was David and all of his little s sons. I say little s sons because he had sons to follow him who would sit on his throne and the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, chronicle their failure. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in one big S son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts. Peter and John have been arrested. They've been charged. They've even been threatened with death for preaching Jesus. That's why the most persecuted religious group in the world today are Christians. It's because our God is this Lord. Our God is this Messiah. And so they were set free and they went back to the church and they reported what had happened. And the people of God began to worship. And they began to pray. And as they began to pray, they began to quote Psalm 2. Because they weren't hopeless. In a world of persecution, they weren't hopeless. Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, 
said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They saw the victory in person. Peter and John are set free. Thomas here is saying at the very beginning of the Psalter, at the very beginning of the Psalms, everything else you're going to read in the Psalms, everything else you're going to read in redemptive history, behind all of the the assaults and, and the struggles and the murmurings and the conspiracies, and many of the reasons God's people struggle and suffer, there is a global conspiracy against the Lord and His anointed. That's it. And in verse 3, we see what they want to do. Notice in verse 3. They say, verse 2, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In the ESV, those words, bonds and cords, aren't real clear. We don't typically use those kind of, that kind of language. Christian Standard Bible translates these words, chains and ropes. Let us burst their chains apart. Who's there? The Lord and His anointed. Let us burst their chains apart and cast away their ropes from us. They do not want boundaries. They do not want restraints. That's the nations. That's all the governments of the world. And that is all the individuals in the world who are unregenerate, unbelieving, and even Christians who are not walking in the Spirit. It was George MacDonald, the 19th century preacher, who said that the central conviction of hell is this, I am my own. That is the central conviction of hell. I am my own. In other words, it's the one conviction that everyone in hell shares. I am my own. But it's also the one conviction that creates hellishness in our lives. It creates hellishness in our relationships. I am my own. In our marriages, I am my own. I have my rights. It creates hellishness in the workplace. It creates hellishness in Christ's church. And this is the natural state for all of us here. We don't like authority. We don't naturally like God's authority. And we certainly don't like human authority that Scripture teaches is derived from God. And there's a clear link here between Psalm 2 and Hosea 11. The same words are used. In Hosea 11, God has come to the northern kingdom through Hosea. And they are apostate from the beginning. They never had a godly king. Not not one king. Because none of the kings came from the tribe of Judah. And God, through the 
mouth of Hosea says this, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim being a word that represents all of Israel. He's one of the tribes. I took them up by their arms. I took them up. I took them out of slavery. I, I, I cared for them. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords. Same, same words as verse 3 here. I led them with cords of kindness and the bonds of love. You see that? It's like we got a dog. We love our dog. And we put a chain on him when we, when we walk her. Why? It's a cord of love to protect our dog so our dog can flourish within the context of those boundaries. God uses these things. He demonstrates his care for us in various ways, and we interpret them as chains and ropes. That's our natural state. Cords and bonds. And every communication of mercy by our God is interpreted in our natural state as shackles. As shackles. And so, in verses 2 and 3, we see the nations and the peoples speaking as they plot. But now the Lord speaks. In verses 4 to 6, Yahweh speaks. Note with me in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Political conspiracies, government injustice, and human governments will be unjust. And government overreach. Can they overreach? Samuel warned us of that. The book of Samuel warned us of that. Big government's not good for people. But it can bring some believers close to despair. And it shouldn't. This is a reason this psalm is important to us. The government may try to play the, the role of God. The government may be arrogant and seek to play roles it should not be playing. But remember, we're not the ones opposed. Ultimately, this is against the Lord and His Messiah. And the one opposed laughs. I didn't make that up. The one opposed laughs. What's interesting is in verses 2 and 3, we see agitation. We see rage. We see plotting. We see bursting of bonds and casting away cords. These are violent verbs. In fact, if you look back in verse 1, if you have the ESV, there's a footnote in verse 1. Literally, the nations noisily assemble, just flitting in agitation, 
Like that swallow we saw last week in Psalm 84 until it found its nest at the altars. But here in verse 4, we see serenity. Not plotting, not scheming, not panic. This one sits in absolute majesty. He has not been dethroned, cannot be dethroned. No panic in heaven, just plans. He's not threatened by rebellion. He sits enthroned in the heavens above all conspiracies, all plots, and in laughter, he holds them in derision. That's your God. That's our God. In other words, he mocks them. It would be like a, a three-year-old bowing up on the heavyweight champion of the world. Notice in verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I've set my king on Zion my holy hill end of story I've set my king in Zion you can plot all you want the king is in Zion the king is enthroned the king is seated at the right hand of God. The protest and the plotting and the scheming and the conspiracies that we see in the world is like the activity of ants who exert a lot of energy and movement and, and activity, but it's all futile in the end when the unstoppable power of the bulldozer of God's purposes comes to bear. Indeed, the Lord has set his king on Zion. As Barry read this morning, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament. You think this is important? Psalm 110 verse 1. 38 times in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for his feet. There's a reason it's quoted 38 times in the New Testament. It was the hope of the people of God. And it is the hope of the people of God. So while they're doing all their plotting, he has already defeated them. Let me give you a couple of examples from history. Just anecdotes. Not that we need this for support, but I've find it encouraging think about Diocletian now you may not know Diocletian but he, there was no Roman emperor more destructive to Christians than Diocletian he was the one before Constantine when he ruled to be a Christian in the empire was to die we kind of yawn sometimes through baptismal services we shouldn't a baptismal service during the rule of Diocletian was a death knell. And he extended his reign, I mean, like no other emperor. 
So when he got into to Spain, famously, he built two monuments. On the one monument, he said, on, on that monument, it said, Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christian. He put that on a monument. We know nothing of the oppression that other Christians have experienced in history. On the second monument, Diocletian. He put that name there. Remember, the kings want to be God. Diocletian for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. All the while, Christianity was growing and growing and growing until his empire was brought underneath the feet of Jesus. William Plummer noted, now there was 71 Roman emperors in history. So this isn't all of them, but here's what he noted. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and their bitterness in persecuting the early Christians. So he, he takes 30 that were known for persecuting of Christians, right? Listen to this. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in miserable captivity. One died of, loathsome, of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it, but I had to call for help to finish it. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths. Several of them having an untold complication of diseases. Eight were killed in battle. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, this is what Plummer said, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God whom he called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, fatally wounded, he saw that all was over with him and he gathered up his clotted blood, threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. That's Roman history. But it's also world history. And so it will be until the end. Indeed. That brings us to the fourth speaker. The anointed one speaks in verses 7 to 9. Notice in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. So this is the anointed one telling us what the Lord told him. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Of course, we remember David was pronounced the son of God in 2 Samuel 7. Today, I have begotten you. So this decree tells us something that's going to happen, not something that might happen. A decree tells us what will happen. 
And the today, today is the day of the son's coronation. So this was considered a coronation hymn or coronation psalm for all the kings that would follow David. Of course, we also know that the discrepancy between the promises made in this psalm and, and the reality of these following kings would have been very alarming until the ultimate one comes. So the today here is the day of the coronation. The words, you are my son, or this is my beloved son, was spoken by the Father two times during Jesus' ministry. Once at his baptism, where he identifies with sinful humanity, and once at the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. So what does this mean, today I've forgotten you? Well, the New Testament gives us the interpretive grid for interpreting the Old Testament, correct? You can't improve on the inspired apostles' hermeneutic, science of interpretation. And here's what Paul said in his first public sermon, Acts 13. And we bring you the good news. That's the word gospel. We bring you the gospel, the good news that what God promised to the fathers. Who are the fathers? Adam, Abraham, Moses, David. What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. You see what he's saying there? In the resurrection of Jesus, we have all the promises that find their fulfillment in this one man. What God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And then notice what it says. As also it is written in the second psalm. I love that. Paul is quoting the second psalm, Psalm 2. He read your Bible. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Of course, this does not refer to Jesus' eternal generation. That is, eternally begotten of the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. Fully God forever. Of the same substance of the Father. The theologians use the term homoousios. Of the same essence, of the same substance, same nature of the Father. Not referring to that. But with him, the Father, raising him from the dead as the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18. As the ruling preeminent God-man king, the royal son. And as the royal son, notice in verse 8, he quotes the Father again. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. Just, just as a side note here, notice even the son has to pray. <laughs> even the son has to ask. Are we a praying people? He says, ask of me, and then I will give the nations your inheritance. And so the father promised the son that he would, if he would ask him, he would give the nations 
to him as his inheritance. So I, I conceive it this way. I, I just envision it this way. The son comes and accomplishes salvation. He fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. There's two aspects to the covenant of grace. Satisfaction. He satisfied God by the cross. And obedience. He satisfied God in his obedience to the covenant of creation. Covenant of works, as some would say. All right? And so the Son of God has satisfied the terms of the law. He's obeyed God even to the point of death. And God raises him from the grave. And so he ascends to the Father. And he comes to the Father and he says, Father, you promised me the nations as my inheritance. But if they are going to be my inheritance, I need to pour out my spirit upon the nations. And the day of Pentecost was opening day. That will one day be every tribe and tongue. The inheritance of our Christ. That is the future. No government can thwart that. That's what the whole point is. This is the time of grace where that is being realized. But judgment awaits the defiant as well. You need to believe that. We don't have to play judge. We'd be a poor judge. Notice in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is the Son of God speaking to his Father. Now this verse is quoted several times in Revelation. Two times with reverence, uh, reference to the victory of Jesus himself. Revelation 12.5, Revelation 19.15. And one time for the victory of Christians over their enemies. Chapter 2, verse 27. Read it this afternoon. This afternoon, if you begin to fret. So Jesus received his people and continue to receive his people as his inheritance, and they share in his reign. But those who continue to resist, those who continue to plot, this is their destiny. Now it may not be immediately apparent here. But verses 8 and 9 greatly impact our understanding of the Great Commission. Why? Because even though verse 6 makes it clear that God has set his king on Zion, this is speaking of something future, where all the nations will be his inheritance. Hebrews 2 even picks that up. In Hebrews 2, it says that God crowned him with with power and glory and honor. He put everything in subjection under his feet, and yet now we do not see everything in subjection under his feet. It's the already, but the not yet. So how does that come? It comes when the church focuses on what it's supposed to focus on. And that's not on governments as much as the Great Commission. God takes care of the governments. As we take the gospel to the nations, the realization of this promise to the son from the father is realized. That is our calling. That brings us to the very end. And then I'm going to close with some 
some points for us. In verses 10 to 12, we see the poet preacher speak, David. So we've seen the nation speak, we've seen the Lord speak, we've seen the anointed one speak. And now we see David speak. Now therefore, O kings, the ones he addressed in verse 1, be wise. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. What is the fear of God? It's every proper response to the revelation of God. To all that he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. It's every appropriate and right response. It's a response of awe. If you don't fear him in this way, you're going to fear something else. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of. I'm seeing Christians fear something else. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Worship. Turn your fear into worship. Kiss the sun. Embrace him. Trust in him. Find your identity in him. Find your hope in him. Kiss the sun. That's a call to us. Kiss the sun. And even for those who are saved, kiss the sun. Husbands, you didn't just kiss your wife on your wedding day. You continue to kiss her. Kiss the sun. Quit getting stirred up by the madness. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. What does that mean? That just means that the mark of a believer is one who kisses the sun. And those who don't kiss the sun are going to perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed. Ends with a promise, doesn't it? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the only wise course. There is no refuge from him, only in him. Where do you hide from the wrath of the Lamb? Because it's coming. You hide from the wrath of the Lamb in the Lamb. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Hide yourself in Him. Find your refuge in Him. And then experience the serenity that God Himself has. Closing points. This is not comprehensive because I'm not inerrant or infallible. But I have tried to think about these things biblically. I'm in I'm generally an inductive preacher in that I, I, I unfold the text in an inductive way. There are times we kind of use deductions. That's what I want to do here. There may be a point that I don't even mention that you, you might say, he didn't mention that. Well, it's because I'm fallible. I'm not perfect. And maybe the points I do mention are not infallible and perfect. But as, as much as I can, I'm going to try to give you eight Closing thoughts. Because I know there's a lot of struggling going on in our church. And it grieves me. First of all, 
Psalm 2 is not about the power of the nation's rage. It's about its futility. Let me repeat that. Psalm 2 is not about the power and the omnipotence and the sovereignty of the nation's rage. It's about its futility. We don't have to fear. Our king wins in the end. He's already won. And his vindication is our vindication. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And this is the ground. This is the ground for how we are to respond to any government we're under. A posture of victory. A losing team looks and acts desperate. We're not on the losing team. But what would it look like for Christ's church if we were convinced both that we will have trouble in this world and that Jesus has overcome the world? What would that look like for us? We will have trouble in this world. He's overcome the world. Jesus said that. I've overcome the world. Wouldn't this present for us a strange confidence that might woo unbelievers? A strange confidence that chastens fear and desperation and anger and rage, but is also committed to the good of our neighbor. You can't be committed to the good of your neighbor if you're all bound up in desperation and fear and bitterness. Remember, we Christian believers are heaven's ambassadors. We represent Christ to the world. What would the persecuted church think if they were reading some of our posts? Would they find encouragement from us? We are heaven's ambassadors, and the church is the embassy of the kingdom of Christ. We represent him. How will you represent him? As one who is more than a conqueror? Or one who really thinks that maybe the nations are going to win in the end? Second, we honor, we submit to our government... Because the Bible says in Romans 13, they are servants of God and ministers of God with a derived authority from God. And you can reinterpret that, but you'll, you'll be against church history if you do that. And ever, you, you will be against every Pauline scholar who holds the Bible in high authority. And to resist that is to be like those in verse 3 who burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Third, and this is important because I, I have been misrepresented here. Acts 5.29 says, we obey God over man. Acts 5.29 kicks in the very moment the government commands us to do what God forbids. And forbids us to do what God commands. The moment they try to control this pulpit, they've got a rebellion on their hands. 
and I'll go to jail. I'll do whatever it takes. The moment they forbid us to do what God commands. Of course, the distinction has to be made. Is what the government is doing an infringement on religious liberty? Or is the government doing, certainly not perfectly, they're building the plane in the air too, remember that. Is the government doing what it's been charged to do, which is to look out for the welfare of the people under them? In other words, is the government targeting churches? Some feel that way. I don't yet. Or are there directives generally applicable? After all, the government and we can support this from Scripture, has the right to set forth the safety measures that it deems necessary to promote the general well-being and common good of the people, even if it doesn't make sense to me. And there's some things that don't make sense to me. But imagine rebelling every time it doesn't make sense. We'd have tyranny. That's why... For example, we have to have fire suppression systems. That's expensive. Plus hundreds of other safety measures to have a building to worship in. Fourth, I'll go through these quickly. I'm sorry this is going a little late. Pray for your government officials. 1 Timothy 2. This is in the pastoral ministry manual, by the way. Why would it be included in the pastoral ministry manual? The pastoral epistles. Because we need it. It's not natural to us. I urge that supplications and prayers and, and intercessions and thanksgiving, whoa, be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Pray that they would rule with justice. Pray for repentance when there is injustice. Has there been injustice? Yes, there's been injustice. Of course, there's been injustice. Pray for those who have experienced injustice. Pray for those who've been affected by the injustice financially, their careers. Pray for those who are struggling right now in the pandemic with health issues and concerns. Pray, pray, pray. And what I'm about to tell you, I think you would agree with. The most effective way to use your voice and your words is prayer. Fifth, in a democratic republic, we have responsibilities as citizens. I'm not calling for passivity here, though some would take it to be that. We are... Called, 1 Peter 4.10, I'm giving you verses for all of this, to be stewards of the varied, the manifold grace of God. And one of the graces we have in this government structure is a voice. That's a grace. On Memorial Day weekend, we're thankful for those who laid down their lives that we might have this grace. God uses means. And so we're responsible 
as citizens. And the Constitution has given us ways to do that. And so we have constitutional rights to attend rallies. It's okay to go to rallies. We have constitutional rights to write to our representatives. Most importantly, to vote as informed citizens and vote with the Word of God as our evaluative grid. Not the party we grew up in. We're citizens of another kingdom. And we recognize the Word of God gives us a hierarchy of importance on issues. You'll hear people talk about, well, that's just one issue. There's a hierarchy if you know your Bible. Jesus spoke about the weightier matters of the law. There are some matters in the law that are weightier than other matters of the law. In other words, Scripture doesn't give us a tax code, even though Samuel makes clear that big, large taxes, big government is not good for people. But what it does demand is capital punishment for murder. Any government that seeks to have true retribution believes in capital punishment for murderers. You can't get away from that. And yet, there's cities of refuge for manslaughter. Weightier matters, distinctions in the law. And going back to the creation account, you never get away from the creation account. The apex of creation is the image of God. We're the apex of creation. Create on the sixth day. So here's the question. Does the image of God begin at birth? Or does it begin at conception? You know the answer to that. And so I would submit to you that any politician, any politician who believes that a woman has a right to do with another image bearer what she wants to do is not qualified for office. How about the ordinance of marriage? Bible makes it clear. One man, one woman. Any politician who believes that we have the rights to redefine what God has defined and has been believed even by unbelievers for centuries is not fit for office. So when you go to the polls... You vote with the Word of God in your hand, knowing there's a hierarchy of issues. Sixth, this has to do with us. Because everything's not black and white right now. I said the government's building the, uh, the plane in the air. So are we. I told Joe Humphrey that uh, the day they discussed pastoring in pandemics, I missed that class in, in seminary. Because of that, there needs to be some trust. Paul says in Ephesians 4, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. And he's talking about believers with each other. Be completely humble and gentle. That's a command. That's a command. We call people out 
for pornography. We retweet people who break that command all the time. It's just, it's just upside down. Be completely humble and gentle, patient with one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If this divides us, whoa. This pandemic divides Christ's church. We are bearing false witness to an accomplishment of Jesus, which is reconciliation. Seventh, what we can't do. We cannot use our cherished First Amendment rights. And I love the Constitution. I would never vote for anyone who does not stand on that Constitution. But we cannot use our First Amendment rights to slander. The First Amendment gives us the right to slander. (laughs) But the Word of God dictates how we use that right. Titus 3, listen to this. Again, pastoral epistles. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And then eight, let's close this out. We don't engage in speculations. We don't seek to read the motives of others. You hate that when, it does, when someone does that to you. If you've been married for a day, you know that. And you don't engage in conspiracy theories. What's your verse, Brian? 1 Timothy 1.4. Again, the pastoral epistles. We aren't to devote ourselves to things which promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. We have a stewardship, and it's not to engage in speculation. So again, let's go back to the Psalter. The Psalter begins with the nations raging, the promise of blessing to the righteous because of the exalted king. The Psalter takes its way through all of these storms, these valleys, these conspiracies, the pains of God's people. And it ends with Psalm 46 to 150. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The king is on his throne and all the people of God have gathered together and no government could have ever thwarted it. It's heaven. It's glory. The kingdoms of the world has become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Hallelujah. That's how the psalm ends. May this be our song. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's how the Psalter ends. And that's how we end this morning. Let's bow our heads just for a Short moment of prayer, and then we'll close with a doxology. Lord, the psalmist 
ends his psalter by crying, praise the Lord, O my soul. The Lord, you set the prisoners free. And you will reign forever. Praise the Lord. May that be our song, Lord. Forgive us. That song has been muted. If it's been eclipsed by other songs. Songs of rage. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Restore unto us the song. Hallelujah. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join me as we declare with the inspired Jude? Now to him who who is able, fumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.